This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. The UK's vote to leave the European Union has reverberated around the world. Hugh Pill, Chief European Economist at Goldman Sachs, is here to help us make sense of the ramifications of a Brexit. Hugh, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So, Hugh, the UK's referendum on whether to leave the EU was top of mind issue for months. But this vote to leave still took many people by surprise. How would you characterize the early market response to the Brexit vote? Well, clearly, many UK asset prices, not least the exchange rate, moved quite dramatically on Friday morning as we progressively saw the results coming in and the growing likelihood and eventually the reality that we were going to see a vote to leave rather than remain. Now, it's true that markets had rallied ahead of that, equity markets, the pound had strengthened, in expectation of a remain vote. And maybe there was a little bit of complacency um, on the side of markets that that would be the outcome. Uh, so we saw very dramatic reactions which largely unwound the previous run-up. If you look kind of at a slightly longer perspective, maybe across the two weeks surrounding the referendum, I think probably there you see less dramatic moves. Um, and then we've seen a sort of subsequent sell-off over the last couple of days, which have moved us further on. What I would say, though, is probably what's been encouraging, or at least somewhat reassuring, relative to, say, the post-layman environment, is that although we've seen a lot of volatility in asset prices, and we've seen big moves in asset prices, markets themselves have continued to function quite well. We haven't seen the sort of seizing up of markets or the gapping of prices or the inability to sell securities at any price, that form of kind of extreme illiquidity that seemed to characterize, say, the period in the fall of 2008 after the failure of Lehman. And I think as long as there's an ability to trade, a price is being set, the repricing, although painful for those on the wrong side, is probably a healthy reaction to something that fundamental that has changed. And the functioning of markets and the support provided to that functioning, both by the private sector and the authorities, I think has helped to facilitate that process. So your team in Goldman Sachs Research has estimated the uncertainty surrounding Brexit will shave about half a percentage point from GDP for the UK this year and another 1.8 percentage points next year. So that implies a mild recession for the early part of next year. So what's driving that slowdown? Well, for sure, I mean, we woke up on Friday morning with a leave vote, uh, but nothing concrete had changed overnight. The UK was still a member of the EU. The European law continued to apply in the UK. British firms continue to have access to the single market. So we haven't really initiated or even started the initiation. And we don't even understand the timetable for for sure. by which those things will happen yet. Yeah. So I think you can't look to change your forecast, especially the forecast over the next couple of years, on the fact that trade or financing or movement of people is going to become more difficult. Because the reality is it's not concretely likely to become more difficult over that horizon. So the reason why we've mainly marked down our forecast is because there has, as a result of the Leave vote, been a considerable shock, an uncertainty shock to the economy and to financial markets in the sense that financial institutions, market participants, businesses, consumers 
they don't know what regime they're going to be working in in two or three years' time. They don't know whether the British firms will continue to have access to markets in Europe at that horizon on the same basis they do today. We don't know whether cross-border financial transactions at that horizon can continue to be made under the relative freedom they're able to make today. And because of that, we think that while there's so much of uncertainty, there's an incentive to postpone your investment decision, to postpone your spending decision, to postpone that building of a factory to serve the European market in the UK until we know what form of access the goods produced in that factory will have into the single market in Europe. And it's that postponement of activity, maybe just delaying it, maybe if the uncertainty resolves in a way that makes it unattractive to, to operate in the UK, the, the eventual cancellation of that activity and its transfer to another part of Europe. But really it's the essence that in the face of uncertainty, a lot of activities are just not gonna take place now. And that leads to quite a sharp fall in activity in our view. Given the extent of which there are known unknowns, right. how do you model the, the impact of that range of outcomes? Well, I think the short answer is it's difficult. Um, and, you know, economists are used to working in an environment where maybe the rules, the legal framework uh, and so forth are all taking as given. And then we're looking at other factors. One of the difficult things about a Brexit scenario is that lots of things that we typically take for granted are suddenly up in the air. Now, how have we set about doing it? Well, we've tried to construct measures for how the private sector, the financial markets, the man in the street view uncertainty. Um, we've taken, for example, measures of uh, implied volatility in stock prices, the famous VIX uncertainty index from uh, the financial crisis. We've also you know, done word searches across British newspapers to find out how much they talk about uncertainty or volatility and constructed indices on that basis. We've looked at other financial market spreads. Each of these things seem to us to give some important gauge of uncertainty. And, you know, they co-move. So there's some sort of suggestion that they're picking up something um, which is reflective of the underlying uncertainty in the economy. We've done various efforts to extract that co-movement and try and relate it to other macroeconomic variables, growth, inflation, demand, consumption, and so forth, confidence. Um, and we've used that type of analysis spread across a variety of different episodes in a variety of different countries to try and gauge how, on average, the economy responds to uncertainty. Now, to try and give a bit more of a focused view of what's going on in the UK, because in the end, this is a specifically UK question, we've also done a number of analyses using that framework, focusing on three key episodes, which we characterize as examples of uncertainty in the UK economy recently or in the last 25 years. The first is the exit of Britain from the exchange rate mechanism back in 1992. The second is events around the Scottish referendum, which took place on independence in Scotland that took place about 18 months ago. And the third is um, the impact of uncertainty, where we try and isolate the uncertainty effect from all the other effects following the failure of Lehman in 2007, 2008. And so that gives you a spectrum of outcome where the Scottish referendum on UK GDP as a whole had relatively little effect, whereas the financial crisis and the uncertainties associated with that had a very big effect. Now, of course, that begs the question, what's the magnitude of uncertainty we're facing now? How does it kind of calibrate against those three examples? Um, and you know, if we look at the, the, the type of measures we've constructed, it looks more like it's a sort of uh, post-Lehman uncertainty shock than a post-Scottish referendum uncertainty shock, maybe not surprisingly. 
And so as a result, that's the basis for the sort of numbers that we come up with, about a 2.5% fall in the level of GDP over two years, which translates into this 1.8 shaving that you describe uh, in your question. So one thing that's easier to model is the impact on the currency. Mm -hmm. And so the pound fell to its lowest levels in, in over 30 years after the results were announced. How do you see the balance of risks between the inflationary side of the currency mm. decline and the benefit it might give to UK exporters? Well, I mean, I think clearly a weaker currency, other things equal, is going to boost import prices into the UK. Uh, and we have raised our view on inflation in the UK uh, as a result of the sharp decline we've seen over the last few days following the, the vote to leave in the referendum. Um, and that may limit the ability of, of monetary policy to... Well, I mean, I think you have to start keep in mind that we're starting from a situation in the UK, as we are in other parts of the world, where inflation is low. Right. <laughs> and not just low, but undesirably low in the right. sense that it's well below, well below the, the target rates. that yep. the Bank of England in the UK skate has set. So, you know, from that perspective, and of course, this is a very narrow perspective, <laughs> from the perspective of getting inflation back to target, arguably, the higher import prices coming from the depreciation of the currency helps in some sense. Now, um, I'd also say that, you know, because we have this combination of higher inflation coming from the import prices, but also the downturn in the economy that we discussed a moment ago, I mean, the downturn in the economy is going to weigh on it inflation, other things equal. It's going to leave some more slack in the economy with otherwise would be the case, and that will mean lower wages, lower cost developments, lower price inflation. So, so I think the important thing to see is overall it's a balance between these two things in our inflation outlook. And we do have inflation going up more quickly than we had in the past, but we don't really envisage a kind of big overshoot of the inflation target. So we don't think that's going to limit the Bank of England's scope to ease monetary policy and support the economy in the face of the uncertainty shock and the downturn in demand that I described. What's more, I think even if inflation were to overshoot in the short term, we think that the Bank of England is credible enough in its commitment to get inflation back to target, say over a three or four year horizon, that it would be prepared to allow that overshoot and therefore, it wouldn't be deterred in keeping the support for the economy in place through lower interest rates, more asset purchases, and other measures of stimulating the economy, even though maybe there is a moment when inflation is going above the 2% target. So, you know, I think the important thing to see is that the degree of freedom the Bank of England has is probably relatively high. Now, turning to your point about exporters, I mean, a weaker currency should improve price competitiveness, should support exporters. I think, though, that you have to take into account that the structure of the UK economy is, is a bit distinct from many other economies, advanced economies in general, but also uh, specifically in Europe. And that's partly because the UK has specialized to some extent in the financial services sector. And, and financial services are less of a, a lower cost basis in the financial services, in this case, is being offset by the... the uncertainty around whether they can actually function. Right. No, I think that's true. It's also true, I think, in general, that services of that type yeah, are less so in... Problem, yeah. yeah. They're yeah. not so... S yeah. The demand for the Europe, from other parts of the world, other parts of Europe, for British financial services is probably less sensitive to the exchange rate and so forth than would be, say, the demand for manufacturing goods that are produced in the UK. Um, I mean, partly reflecting the fact that a lot of financial services business is conducted in dollars, um, but also because uh, the, the, the type of um, uh, salary sensitivities and so forth and other cost sensitivities is not so great to the exchange rate. So um, we wouldn't expect to see that much support in the aggregate 
coming from a weaker exchange rate, certainly some at the margin. What that means is that probably the dominant effect of a weaker exchange rate is really coming through um, onto higher inflation. Um, and the, the, the supportive effect for activity is really coming through the easier monetary policy and its effect on domestic financial conditions rather than strongly through the exchange rate. So you said that the Bank of England has, has mm -hmm. a range of options available to it, and they've said all options mm -hmm. will be explored going forward. Um, they've already taken some steps to ensure that the market continues to mm -hmm. function smoothly, which it has uh, to date. How do you anticipate their policy evolving over the rest of the year, and, mm -hmm. and how are they going to use the flexibility that they have? Well, I, I think there are, I would distinguish sort of two sets of policy. Maybe it's a little arbitrary. I think in terms of supporting market functioning, ensuring that even if there's a substantial repricing of assets, that repricing of assets takes place where there are buyer-sellers on both sides and markets are functioning in an orderly way. I think the Bank of England and indeed other central banks around the world will do, quote, whatever it takes, to yeah. quote Mr. Draghi's uh, remarks from July 2012. They will do whatever it takes to ensure that. Because I think one of the big lessons of the 2007-2008 experience, the Northern Rock, the post-Lehman experience and so forth is, is once you allow markets to seize up, you don't allow a trading of assets, you don't allow the price formation to take place, then you can get yourself in a very difficult place to extract yourself from. So I think in that dimension, they will use all options, and I think they have lots of options. They built up a whole machinery in conjunction with their colleagues and other central banks, which is being employed and will continue to be employed. Separate set of issues is what they might do with more, if you like, traditional macroeconomic measures oriented towards monetary policy. We expect them uh, in the coming weeks, um, once the market is settled, um, both to cut interest rates in order to support the economy, notwithstanding weaker sterling and um, uh, the rise in inflation that we anticipate in the coming years owing to the depreciation, cutting rates to make domestic financial conditions easier than they otherwise would be in order to support the economy, I think is an important element of what they can do to underpin the situation. And how about on the asset purchase side? Well, I think in the first instance, yes, we do expect them to restart asset purchases. The Bank of England has, uh, has suspended them, if you like. I think perhaps even more importantly, and probably is the first line of defense, what we expect them to do is move away from just buying sovereign assets, which is what they've largely done in the past, to buying more private assets, corporate assets. Similar to what the ECB has done. I think that's right. And I, I think the main reason is that's an opportunity to squeeze corporate credit spreads and so provide easier financing conditions for key elements of the real economy in the UK to sustain demand, sustain investment in what, as we discussed earlier, is quite a difficult environment. But at the same time, take measures that aren't perhaps through, for example, cutting rates, is putting further downward pressure on the exchange rate. So at the time when the exchange rate has been depreciating a lot and you don't want to fully undermine confidence in your currency by seeming to sort of be cutting rates into an ever-depreciating exchange rate, I think using these credit-easing measures is a way of supporting the domestic economy with running less risks on the external side. So we talked a little bit about Europe. Unfortunately for Europe, this vote was just one part of what's been a very challenging period, really since the financial crisis mm -hmm. uh, in, in 2008. The ECB has adopted some pretty unconventional methods as part of its effort to mm -hmm. get the bloc um, sort of on, a, on mm -hmm. a firmer growth trajectory. How do you see their response to what's happening I in the wake of Brexit playing out? Well, I think, again, in terms of keeping markets functioning, 
I think the lessons learned from the post-layman period mean that the ECB will do everything it has to do to ensure that. I mean, I think in the sort of immediate mechanical side of responding to the knock-on effects of Brexit, that probably means providing ample liquidity to the market, which is it's already done, it's in the process of doing. It also, crucially, I think, means providing, as other central banks are doing, um, swap lines to the Bank of England and receiving swap lines back from the Bank of England, such that banks in countries which are sterling-based banks, for example, can still have access to euro funding, dollar funding, yen funding, and so forth. So we don't get, again, this dislocation, dislocation in markets yeah. coming from mismatches on the funding. And the Fed is cooperating on that for line sure. as well. And, yep. and, and other, all the leading central banks have gone in that direction. Now then if you go and if you turn to the macro side, um, I mean, I think the ECB sees, as we do, that Brexit is a negative shock to demand in the euro area. Um, our forecast for euro growth is around 1.5% without Brexit. Brexit, we see, is probably shaving off two-tenths of a percentage point off growth this year. Now, that doesn't sound too dramatic, uh, and it's certainly not catastrophic compared to some of the experience we've had in Europe over the last decade. Nonetheless, um, if you're only growing at 1.5%, two-tenths of a percentage point is not something that you can just idly uh, treat with complete uh, neglect. So we do think there will be some response from the ECB. Of course... You know, ECB has already got negative interest rates at the very short end, negative policy rates. And an aggressive asset purchase. Which is flattening the yield curve. So, uh, you know, the safe yield curve in, uh, in uh, the euro area, the Bund curve, is already very flat. Um, and it's also buying corporate assets and other things. So, you know, it's degrees of freedom for movement maybe are more limited uh, on these sort of types of policy measures. So we do think the ECB will do more, but maybe it will do more slightly extending the pace of purchases, extending the duration of the purchases in terms of no longer stopping as they've currently signaled in March 17, but going beyond that, and maybe changing the composition of purchases towards the riskier assets, both more periphery purchases and more uh, private corporate purchases rather than just buying uh, the safest sovereign debt. Um, I would also say, and maybe this is, this is one thing where we'd also expect some of this in the UK, there is a tendency to focus a lot on monetary policy, and that's natural for people operating in financial markets because monetary policy is sort of the most immediate macroeconomic policy to what we are doing. But I would also expect to see some easing of fiscal policy in response to Brexit, both in the UK and in the euro area. Um, so rather than the sort of under this Under this leadership or under the, <laughs> the incoming... Uh, Leadership. Well, I mean, I think I think in the UK probably more in, under the incoming leadership. Yep. Um, I think in the rest of Europe, in the Euro area, in France, Germany, and so forth. I mean, what we're going to see there is, in my view, the the austerity reaction to the downturn in 2011, 2012 in the Euro area, where we saw the economy turn down and fiscal policy was tightened quite significantly in some countries yeah. at the time of the Troika Made programs. Made things much so. worse. Yeah. Now, th there may have been rationales for that, but I think right. in terms of demand, it certainly deepened the recession in those countries. I think that's not an experience we're likely to receive repeated now. So I think monetary policy will do more, but to some extent, the heavy lifting on sustaining euro area demand will less come from the ECB and more come from the fiscal authorities. The EU just released data showing mm -hmm. that it finally surpassed its previous high mm -hmm. of 2008. What you seem to be saying is that if monetary policy is wise and well-coordinated, mm. and the impact of Brexit is significant but doesn't push the EU into negative growth, that the EU weathers the storm in the next couple of years. Well, I think that that, that is our base case, right? Well, yeah, what are the risks to right. that? I think the key thing we would take the view is 
we've been expecting Europe to be grow around one and a half percent. I mean, that's above trend. It's a lot better than where we've been. It's not something to get too excited about, frankly, but nonetheless, it's kind of a recovery in the right direction. Um, clearly, Brexit, other things equal, is a challenge to that. So that is a downside risk. But if Brexit is basically limited to this type of uncertainty shock, which is largely centered in the UK, and then spills over through weaker external demand into the euro area, for example, less strong demand for European exports in the UK. I mean, that's probably a manageable risk. And a combination of monetary and fiscal policy can probably manage that and offset it ultimately. So I think the big downside risk is really in this context that Brexit triggers a political reaction which puts into question some of the progress that has been made on building the backstops and improving the governance and building the durability and reliability of the wider EU and in particular of the euro area. So when we went through the 2011-2012 crisis in the euro area, what happened was at a time when there was a need to try and address policy issues and, and governance issues and so forth. In fact, the governance structures began to melt away in Europe. And so even when policies were available to do something, we could have done asset purchases at the ECB at that time. We could have had easier fiscal policy. I mean, it was impossible to deliver those types of stabilizing policies because the governance structures, the trust between countries, all was going in, in the wrong direction. So I think that remains the sort of big threat. Mr. Draghi, the ECB, the banking union, the single supervisory mechanism, these new machinery, the, the European stability mechanism, these backstops, this new uh, uh, process of man We have taken out some of the sort of narrowly market and financial risks. But what's happened is we've kind of doubled down on managing the political risks. And what Brexit shows you, and in particular Brexit is an inspiration for other countries in the EU, and particularly countries in the euro area, to move down the route of having referenda, considering exit, uh, and so forth and so on. I think all those sort of narrow financial backstops that are in place, they're not really well designed to deal with these political challenges. So the biggest risk to the euro area from domestic sources remains the sort of institutional political governance risk. Unless Europe can give the gr deliver the growth, dynamism, entrepreneurship, innovation, that creates jobs for the 10% of the European workforce that remains unemployed, even after this recovery that's already taken place, then the political dynamics are going to go in a way that we're going to see forces to change the system, which even the ECB and Mr. Draghi and all this the machinery that's been built up won't be able to contain. So I think that's the biggest risk. That wouldn't be our base case. Um, and you know we're, we're not sitting on thinking that the euro area is a tinderbox which is about to explode in the way it did in 2011, 2012. I think a lot has been learned from that experience. And in particular, it's been learned that you don't want to repeat that experience. Um, so you know, I wouldn't go too far in that direction. And perhaps you know, the main lesson drawn by other countries and politicians in other countries from the Brexit experiences is don't have referendums unless you know what the answer is going to be. <laughs> With such an uncomfortable sort of combination that you described of political, economic uncertainty, weighing on growth, what do you be watching most closely to determine how things will go from here? Well, given what I said just a moment ago about understanding where the biggest risks come from a benign environment, speaking as an economist, the irony is I think you really need to be looking at these institutional and political factors. Maybe economists are uncomfortable in focusing on those because perhaps they don't think they understand them as well as they understand, you know, 
financial dynamics or real GDP dynamics or growth dynamics, things that we're comfortable with and we have models for and so forth. So I think one of the challenges for us, and the example of uncertainty is one of the ways we've set about to do that, as we discussed earlier. One of the challenges for us is to work out how to incorporate into our analysis and our framework something that isn't narrowly economic. Now, with that in mind, you know, when I go sort of look out and think, where's the next stress point in Europe? I mean, I think the reality is probably that stress point is a political stress point, not a narrowly economic stress point. And where would I be looking for it? We've just had the Spanish elections. I mean, interestingly, the Spanish elections seem to some extent to be a response to the Brexit, a, a move Saying towards... we don't a, want to go that way. Right. Yeah. Um, and I mean, maybe Spain is a bit different. I think Spain's a very pro-European country and so forth. Um, I mean, clearly there are issues in France, in Germany, with the rise of populist parties and how that's managed. Um, but if I was looking for sort of where the next flashpoint is, I think it probably is in Italy. They have a referendum coming up in Italy in October. Uh, Mr. Renzi's incumbent government is essentially a pro-reform, pro-EU government. And you just said troubling local elections. Right. So I think, you know, from our perspective in thinking about, well, where is it that you could see a political flashpoint that would create a disturbance in markets where Mr. Draghi can sort of manage the symptoms, but he can't manage the cause? I mean, I think probably that's the next point. And, you know, October is what now, four or five months away. But so far, the market isn't really, you're not seeing spreads blow out in, mm. these, in some of these countries in the way you did even in 2010. Right. And I think that, that remains our, our baseline view. And that's going back to what you said earlier, that, that's very much part of the, uh, the, the sort of forecast that we have that, yes, there were lots of stresses. Yes, there are many remaining challenges in Europe. So clearly growing at one and a half percent and sort of managing our way through Brexit in the way we've discussed is not a solution to the deeper problems that, you know, the euro area doesn't function very well as an economic and monetary union, that we don't have a lot of growth in Europe. We don't have the demographics or innovation or technological improvements that's going to drive growth of substantially stronger rates than what we're forecasting. So the type of path we outlook is a better path than we've been. It's probably sustainable over a period of years. It's probably enough to avoid the kind of political meltdown which would you know, create existential risks again and lead us back into 2011, 2012. But what I think you know, we always have to keep in mind with this is, is it's not strong enough growth and it's not enough institutional reform and it's not enough improvement in the performance of the EU, either in political terms or economic terms, that is really leading us out of, um, uh, of some of the malaise we've been in for a prolonged time. And so, you know, Europe still has a lot of homework to do. Europe's problems, or the EU's problems, are not fundamentally to do with the UK, right? The problems of the Europe and the Euro area need to be addressed by actors in the Euro area and in the EU. And maybe the Brexit can act as a catalyst to sort of a forcing mechanism that concentrates minds. But I'm not sure that it's the source of the problem. If you would have had an easy solution to the problems facing the euro area, you'd already have implemented it. Hugh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So we'll end on that quasi-optimistic note. <laughs> that concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on June 27, 2016. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. 
The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.